begin. Um, in case you haven't been around for a while, or maybe you're, maybe you're new here, um, I'm not normally the guy who's up here preaching on uh, Sunday mornings. I am normally the guy who's on the guitar there. But um, I, uh, my name is Matt Schweitzer, and I am in seminary. I'm, I'm working on my pastoral degree right now, my Master's of Divinity. And um, Paul and Brandon have graciously given me the opportunity to uh, have some preaching times here on, on Sunday mornings. Um, I'm in a preaching class right now, so this is also for for school right now, but um, I did really enjoy the, the time and process of this. This is new to me. Um, so just, just know that <laughs> if, this is your, if this is your first wife coming here, I'm not normally the guy who's up here. Pastor Brandon is our, <laughs> is our, is our lead pastor. This isn't a caveat. I am, uh, I am proud and excited to bring this word to you this morning. Um, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed the study, and um, I, I do earnestly believe it will be useful uh, and, and a teaching opportunity for you. So, here we go. Uh, we are in Joel chapter 2 today. If you've been following along with our uh, Bible in 90 Days series, we're, we're on day like 67 today, I think. We're, we're almost there. I think even this next week we start to get into the New Testament. We, we will have finished the entire Old Testament. But uh, today we're going to be talking about Joel chapter 2. But first, I want to start with a story of uh, a woman in, in Georgia in 2004 she was arrested on suspicion of first-degree forgery. Her crime was trying to pay for merchandise at a Walmart with a million-dollar bill. One of those little gag, gift, fake million-dollar bills. She earnestly believed that it was real. And, and she expected to receive, she, she, she rang up about $1,700 worth of stuff at Walmart. It wasn't like a small Walmart transaction, but still, it was a lot of change for a million-dollar bill. She was expecting to receive change for $998,000 from this Walmart cashier. <laughs> this story is a head-scratcher on many levels, many, many of, not the least of which is how did she expect to walk out with that much change or that it would just be in a Walmart cash register. I don't know. Another baffling part of her story is, is just her downright denial of her wrongdoing. She legitimately thought it was real currency. It was gifted to her by her, by her estranged husband. How could it be fake? <laughs> for Alice... The root of this plan came from that brokenness in her marriage. It was the product of being in a sinful world. It's, it, start, it started right there. She tried to fix that brokenness, the, the, the dysfunction that had happened in her marriage, with more, with more sin. She, 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 she tried to pass this off as, as, as being real, this fake currency. The point of telling the story is that it highlights the irrationality of, of most of our sin. Most sin doesn't make sense. How often are we like Alice in that moment? The sin seems to make a lot of sense. Afterwards, it's like we expected to receive change from a million-dollar bill. We lie, and we expect good things to happen. We overindulge in food or alcohol or entertainment, and we expect to feel better. We take what isn't ours, and we expect that we'll finally be satisfied in what we have. We refuse to resist temptation, and we expect peace. We act selfishly and expect stronger relationships with other people, even though we're self-centered. We ignore repentance, and we expect forgiveness. We hand over a fake, and we expect change. This can be most dangerous when, like Alice, we deny that we even did anything wrong. 
if you've been following along in the, in the Bible in 90 Days series, like I said, we've been going through the Old Testament. And the Israelites sinned in all of these ways and more. You've recently been reminded of the ways in which they disobeyed all the things that God had told them to do. They were chosen as God people, but they scorned his will. They decided to go about living their lives whatever way that they wanted. Today we're going to jump into Joel chapter 2 and God's response to this litany of disobedience that they had participated in. Joel is really similar to a lot of the other Old Testament prophets in that he has a message of repentance. He, a lot of these prophets were bringing a message of repentance to God's people that they, they should repent and be spared from God's punishment. God doesn't really, or Joel doesn't really specifically reference what the wrongdoings of the Israelites are, but, but he, he trusts that to this point, the Israelites themselves are familiar with, with how, they've, <laughs> how they've wronged God and, and that if, if you have read the story of, of the Old Testament or Joel's readers at the time, he assumes would be familiar with the story of the Old Testament. So you can see the laundry list of wrongdoings and disobedience that the Israelites have brought before God, the, the list of unfaithful things that they have, do, they have done to God. So this brings us to Joel 2, where he is warning the Israelites of a coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a judgment of disaster that God is going to bring against his people unless they turn from their sin and return to God in wholehearted repentance. Let's jump in. Joel chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 11. It's up on the screen. If you would rather be looking in your own Bible or on your phone, that's great as well, but it's up there if you need it. Joel chapter 2, starting at verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Let's pray to God again. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. I pray it would work powerfully and draw us closer to you on this day. May my words be clear and honoring to your truth and useful for your people listening here. In Jesus' name, amen. So Joel wrote this warning of repentance so that the Israelites would understand the grave nature of their actions. It was so much so that God was on the brink of exercising his ultimate judgment against them. There's a coming day of the Lord. This was used to refer to instances in which God rescued his people and crushed evil and their enemies. They've experienced this. They were freed from Egypt. God sent plagues ag against Pharaoh and against the people of Egypt for, for holding his people in slavery and in captivity. The Israelites are normally on the, on the good end of the day of the Lord. They're, no they're normally delivered and they receive salvation on the day of the Lord. But this one is different. This is coming for them. 
and it's going to be bad. Verse 11 says, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? No one can endure it. They're not going to be able to withstand this. They're hopeless. They've tried to fix their repeated problems of disobedience by lying and deceiving and worshiping other gods. They're trying to pass off the fake million-dollar bill so they feel like they have something that's worth something in this life. None of it has worked. And God has said, I've seen enough. It's like a parent breaking up a fight with their children. If no one's going to play nice, you're not going to play at all. Game over. We're done. God says the day of the Lord is coming and everyone's going to be on a permanent timeout. However, with this threat of punishment, there's also a message of hope. God is still sovereign and in control, and he's not going to rush to anger upon us. He's exercised a lot of patience thus far, and there's a possibility that he might still continue to exercise patience. He might not yet ready be, re- be ready to bring down the wrath of the day of the Lord on his chosen people. Verse 12 says, Yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. God says, even now, when I'm at the end of my rope and I'm about to lose it on all of you, in all my righteous anger. Parents, what would that feel like to, to have righteous anger? Don't you? That would be nice, right? Maybe, it probably wouldn't, but... <laughs> but we can't. We're called to show patience. God could. God could act in righteous anger. He's God. He's sovereign and in control over all. He has the power to do it, and he would be right. We would deserve that punishment. The people of Israel would deserve that punishment for their unfaithfulness, yet he still shows patience. Verse 13 says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He relents over disaster. There's an out here. God might change his mind about the whole end of the world as we know it thing for the Israelites. He asked them to rend their hearts and not their garments. This is, this is kind of a cultural thing at the time. People in the Old Testament, we see instances of this uh, in the story of, of Joseph when his, when his brothers captured him and threw him in a pit to sell him into slavery. One of his brothers, Reuben, was, was actually stricken with grief at what they'd done, and he, and he ripped his robes. He tore his clothes. Uh, si- similarly, when, when Joseph's father found out what, what his brothers had done, he, he also tore his clothes in grief. It was an outward sign of grief and sorrow. And it, it might sound, okay, what's, what's, what's the big deal? We're, we're wrecking clothes. At the time, clothes were a valuable commodity. They were, we, don't, we didn't have a target to run down to and just pick up something off the rack. They were, they were labor-intensive, and, and they took time, and, the, and people often didn't have a whole lot of outfits. They were, they were, it was just the one thing that you wear each and every day. So, so this outward expression of grief, of true sorrow over something, to go to the extent where you would, you would destroy a commodity such as, as clothes was, was really an outward sign of contrition. So in this passage, God is calling his people to experience that kind of grief over their sin. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to feel this sorrow in a way that, that they're, they're sorry for the consequences of their sin, that they're sorry for the suffering that they're now in because they've sinned. He wants them to feel that grief over the actual sin. 
to develop such a distaste for that sin that they, they turn away from that and they turn towards the things that are true and good of God. God is calling his people to open their hearts to him, to see the goodness of his ways and return to him with their whole hearts. He's abounding in mercy and love. He says, I've got it out here. I'll put it out here. I'll respond with it if you wholeheartedly return to me. That's a big ask. What, what is a wholehearted pursuit of God look like? There's a movie I really like uh, called The Prestige. It's actually, gosh, 12 or 13 years old by now. It's, uh, it's about a magician uh, who, has, who has developed a, a revolutionary trick, the, the, the transported man. He, uh, he, steps, he steps behind one door on one side of the stage and instantly steps out from, from another door on the other side of the stage, just like that. People are amazed. The root of the trick, however, and I'm sorry, spoilers, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, I'm about to give it away. Um, he has a twin brother. And that brother, they're, they're so committed to this trick that it's not, it's not even that he's just the twin. They are intertwined in each other's lives. They're, they're not only playing both men in the trick. In the heart of the movie, they're, they're both playing each other's lives. They, 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 both have, they both have love interests. The one, the, one, the main character, he's, he's married to a woman and they, and they have some children together. And, and the other one uh, is, has, has a girlfriend on the, on the side as well. But the, they are so immersed in the characters of each other and playing the roles of each other that the wives can't even tell which is which. And, and they, don't, they don't let them in on that. There, there, comes, there comes to a, a climactic scene where He's experiencing, he's experiencing brokenness um, in the, the trick is falling apart and the show isn't going, isn't going that well. And they're, they're, having a, they're having a fight at home that spills, that spills into his home life, the main character and his wife. And, and, he, and he tries to patch it up and he says, but I love you. And she says, not today you don't. He said, what do you mean? She said, you don't mean it today because it was the brother who was having the conversation with her. He couldn't convey the same love. He, he, she wasn't feeling the whole heart because it wasn't the one who truly loved her. Both of these brothers were, were living, they were, two, they, were, they were living two different lives and trying to put on one life. The Israelites to this point haven't been contrite in their grief. They haven't come to God with a wholehearted pursuit. They, they, they can't show, like the main character in, the, in, in this movie, they can't show the real wife, the, the brother can't hope to show the real wife the same love that the actual husband can. He doesn't have the wholehearted pursuit of this woman. He's, li he's living a different life. But now God is giving them a chance to avoid their absolute destruction. They're living in sin, they're trying to solve their sin with more sin. The characters in this movie, they were trying to solve their lies with more lies, with more deceit. It wasn't working. And even though the Israelites are piling up sin on top of sin to cover all these wrongdoings, he offers them a way of salvation. He tells them that if they return to him with their whole heart, he will relent. He will not bring disaster. The question for us today is why would he do that? Why would he choose to withhold 
his righteous wrath from them. They broke his law. They sinned against him. He could act in judgment against him, but he didn't. I think this text gives us three reasons. The first is that God alone is to be loved above all things. Way back in Exodus, in chapter 20, in the passage where Moses first receives the Ten Commandments, the first one, the very first decree that God gives to the people of Israel. He's just freed them from Egypt. They're no longer slaves in captivity. They, they have a life. They're free. They have, they have their whole lives ahead of them. He tells them, Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God tells them back then, he says, see, I was powerful and loving enough to deliver you out of captivity, out of your slavery. I've saved you. Because of that, I should be your first love. You should have nothing in your life that is greater than me because I am a jealous God. I long for the affection of my people. If you devote your attention and affection to other things, sins or passions or other gods, I'm coming for you because I am jealous for you. I've chosen to love you. Fast forward back to to our text in Joel chapter 2. Jump ahead a little bit to verse 27. God reveals his purpose in, in extending this salvation to the people of Israel. So that you shall know again, he already told them, but so that you shall know again that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. He says this again in the middle of chapter 3 in Joel. So you shall know in view of all that's happened that I am the Lord your God. If God brings destruction, if he brings the day of the Lord in light of all that's happened, he will be glorified because it would be a righteous destruction. If his people turn back in repentance, he will be glorified by exercising his great mercy and love. Either way, in destruction or in mercy, God is going to be glorified because he's sovereign over all of it. He says, I'm going to be glorified either way, in wrath or in mercy. But I'm jealous for you, and I want you to come back to me. Return to me with all your heart, because I'm to be loved above all things. The second reason that he would relent is because God is jealous for his people. And he'll fight for their affection. At the end of our text in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. At the beginning of this, of this book of Joel, God sent a locust plague against his people as a punishment to try to get their attention about the brokenness of their sin. He surrounded them in, in the destruction and, that locusts would bring and, and destroying their crops and their land so that they would take a step back and think about what has got us here? How did this brokenness come upon us? He then sends Joel with the message of the impending day of the Lord. The locusts didn't get your attention. I tried with the locusts. I, try, I tried to get you to turn around and come back to me. Now this is a bigger deal that's coming. This is going to be your ultimate destruction in the day of the Lord. These examples are important because if our hearts wander from God, it shows us that he will fight against us to bring us back to him. 
I've felt it in my own life. If I begin to come proud or self-confident, things, life's going great. I probably don't need to pray today. I've got this. Thanks, God, but I'm good. God brings me back down. Things get harder. At home, maybe with, with my wife and kids, I'm maybe on a little shorter hair trigger. Things might annoy me a little quicker. I don't have the patience that I usually do. Everywhere I turn, joy is diminished. God boxes me in and, and clogs my way because I haven't been focusing on him. He fights me against my pride that I've been focusing on me, that I can handle this, God. I don't need you. But all that brings is more brokenness. He fights against me in my pride, for he is a jealous God. and He wants our heart wholeheartedly. When he says in, in, in verse 12 in our text, return to me with all your heart, it's clear that he's fighting for all of it, not just a piece here on Sunday mornings or a piece maybe before mealtime or bedtime when it's easy or convenient to come to him in prayer and give him some attention. That's just a part of our hearts. If you are his, he's going to fight for you until you give him all of your heart all the time because he's jealous for you and he wants to fight for your affections. The third reason that he would relent is because ultimately his mercy and love are stronger than his wrath. Verse 13 says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. His natural impulse is not to act in wrath. He's not sitting up in heaven with his hand over the destruct button just waiting to blow the whole thing up. That's not, it's not his primary impulse. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He can and he will act in judgment if we don't repent and turn from our life of sin. But his mercy and love overwhelm that. He's glorified in his mercy and love too. He's slow to anger. He's slow to wrath. He'd rather extend mercy and love. The text says that if we sincerely repent and return to God with our whole heart, he'll respond. He'll respond in mercy and love. So what's the downside? What's holding us back? What are we afraid of? That, that if we lose this sin, if we commit this sin habit to him, we say, God, take this away. I know this is wrong. It's tearing me away from you. It's preventing me from being wholeheartedly in pursuit of you. What's stopping us from coming back to him? That he's still going to say, yeah, that's nice, but you still did it and you still deserve punishment. That's not what's going to happen. That's not what this text says. He said if we turn to him wholeheartedly in repentance, he will extend mercy and love. They're both stronger than his wrath. So I want to ask you today, what is in your life that's pulling your affections away from God? What sin in your life is causing you to say the words to God, I love you? He responds and says, not today you don't. You don't mean it today.
Right now you might be saying, wow, Matt, you kind of, uh, you picked a downer for your first message. We talked a lot about, we talked a lot about sin. And we did. We're in the season of Lent, which is a time of preparation, uh, 40 days before Easter. And, and one of the common themes of, of Lent is repentance. To reflect and turn from the things that are, that are pulling us away from God. They might not even blatantly be sins. They could, they could just be things that are, that are time suckers, that are, that are taking you away from the things that matter, from your God, from your family. Are you giving them the, the time and attention and devotion that they need, that he's called you to, to give them? I talked about sin today for a couple reasons. First, it was, it was in the text that I was supposed to preach on for this class. So it was... That was <laughs> kind of how it happened. But also, because our sin shows our need for salvation. The mercy and love of God would not be as sweet if we, if we didn't have a brokenness to be saved from. We need to know it, and we need to be grieved by our sin. But only in the sense that it more strongly stirs our affection for God's great mercy and love. In this passage, God offered hope to his people. He offered a way out. Come back to me, and I will relent from disaster. Pastor Brandon mentioned this last week, that that often in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are the subject of God's wrath. They they receive God's punishment. Do you remember what he said? The, the, The scene shifts in the New Testament. It's no longer his people who are receiving the punishment. Who is the object of God's wrath in the New Testament? His son, Jesus. He is so jealous for you to extend his mercy and love for you that he poured out his wrath and destruction on his son. And it was his will to crush him God made a way permanently in the death and resurrection of Jesus for us to have salvation from our sin. I'm sorry. I'll keep it together better next time. (laughs) God made a way in the death and resurrection of Jesus for us to always have that out. You might say right now, Matt, you don't know my life. Thank you, Luke. I'm sorry, I'm just... (laughs) Thank you. You might say right now, Matt, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the sin on top of sin that I've tried to cover with sin and more. God still says, turn from that. Leave it all behind. Cast those things aside and pursue me with your whole heart. I've made a way. I gave my son because I'm jealous for you. Will you turn from your sin, whatever is holding back your love from him, and return wholeheartedly to him? He's waiting with mercy and love to receive you. Romans 5, 8 
says that even in the midst of our sin, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God made a way. He relented from disaster. And he showed mercy and love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word, even the tough parts that talk about our brokenness, that make sin scary and real. That's okay, because sin is scary and real. And there are eternal consequences for it. But in the perfect life of your son, he was a perfect sacrifice for all. And he gave us hope. He gave us a way. He was the perfect sacrifice that you would once and for all extend your mercy and love for us. If we would call on his name, confess our sin, repent from it, and trust in Jesus. It's a love that we, that we don't deserve, that we can't understand, that we can't earn, yet you offer it freely. Thank you for that grace to us, for the gift of your holy word that shows us our need for you. It makes our sin real to us, but it makes your love, your mercy, your grace, all the more sweet to us. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray.